Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Towards the end of the section, Absurd Freedom in his work, The Myth of Sisyphus, Albert Camus is going to outline for us what we can call an ethics of quantity as opposed to one of quality. This is quite interesting because it goes against so many tendencies of moral theory where we want to establish distinctions in quality. And very often people want to resist a leveling, putting everything on the same sort of numerical level, plane, point of view, whatever you want to say, and then just accumulating things. The exception to that would of course be, you know, utilitarian approaches. But even in the utilitarian movement, we see that eventually they have to bring in distinctions between higher and lower pleasures and therefore distinctions of value. I actually want to begin right in the middle of this section with something that Camus brings up. He tells us that this, this notion of the most living calls for definition. And he says, it seems to begin with the fact that the notion of quantity has not been sufficiently explored. Quantity, right? The amount of something. And what does this going to be? Is he, is he really trying to just level everything and say, ah, it doesn't really matter what you do. It's all absurd anyway. So pick and choose any amount of whatever you like. And it's all just as good getting rid of any sort of value or distinction altogether. And no, that, that's not what's going on. There's something a bit more subtle happening here. So a good place to start in earnest then is to look at what he's saying at the, the very beginning of this and the contrast to, we might call it traditional ways of doing ethics. And we do have to talk about what we mean by ethics or morality here as well. So he tells us that belief in the meaning of life always implies a scale of values, a choice, our preferences, belief in the absurd, according to our definitions, teaches the contrary, but this is worth examining. Before we go on to his examination, let's do a little examination of our own, right? So belief in the meaning of life involves having some sort of ethics or morality. And you might say, well, wait a second, not every version of believing that there is some sort of meaning to life, which might come along with believing in human nature or the, some sort of metaphysics. It doesn't always have to imply an ethics or a morality. And, you know, show me some that don't and you'll find an ethics concealed in them, quite frankly, <laughs> as soon as you start scratching the surface and engaging in the sort of examination of these things, genealogical examination that the person who he brings up at the end of this chapter, Nietzsche, did. So there's always some sort of idea about what's good and what's bad. And I, I should point out that very often people think ethics is just a matter of ticking off boxes or compliance or satisfying certain rules. And they often want to try to reduce ethics to something like a decision procedure or algorithm. And there is scope in ethics for doing that. And as a matter of fact, even the ways of doing ethics that acknowledge that there's more to that think that that's important. So a cost benefit analysis, Robert Audi, for example, makes a great case why even a Kantian or virtue ethicist would want to do cost benefit analysis. And you might say an existentialist or absurdist might want to do that as well as a tool. Ethics from its inception has been concerned with more than just what are the rules that we need to live by. It's oriented towards, well, what is genuinely valuable? 
what's worth more than what else. Prime example of this would be, say, the Stoics claiming that virtue is more important than everything else that is indifference, but the indifference themselves have values. We can come up with a scale or another word that gets used is a hierarchy of values, another word, rank ordering, right? So if we're an Aristotelian, we could say, well, you know, virtuous activity is the best thing, maybe contemplation, if we accept Nicomachean Ethics book 10 above that. And then we've got other things like pleasure and health and wealth, and those aren't bad ads. Those are actually good things, but they're not as important. So we should prioritize, right? A scale of values involves making choices, making decisions, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And we're not just thinking when we're doing ethics about the immediate situation, we might also be thinking about longer term things like the nature of my whole life or the fabric of my relationships or the kind of person who I would like to be, but am not yet quite, but by doing the right thing, I make myself better by choosing the wrong thing. I make myself worse. So, so that's part of it as well. And that again, belief in there being some sort of meaning of life. I should be a better person. That's part of the meaning of life. So choices, decisions plays a role in that. Preferences is important as well. And that often ties in with the scale of values. Your preferences could be out of whack with the ideal hierarchy or scale of values. Rules play a role in it. Having rules to get by in our day-to-day -day existence, rules to settle difficult cases for ourselves, a rule of life, as Camus is going to say. Justification plays a role as well. Being able to say to other rational agents, I'm not a complete screw up. Take a look at my motivations here and, you know, the actions that I did or well, I am a real screw up and I really need to fix things, right? Lack of justification. And then he also a little bit earlier in the chapter talked about before the absurd, the ordinary person has all sorts of goals and aims and ends. They're oriented towards a future. The absurd takes that future away, makes it uncertain, says, well, you could die at any moment or descend into madness or anything that you do could not matter, right? So that's what we're talking about is the reversal here. It's not just a scale of values, choices, and preferences. It's this whole ensemble of the domain of what we call the ethical. And so you could say, wow, Camus is really doing something radical here, taking that away. What is going on here? So a little bit later, he says that belief in the absurd amounts to, or is tantamount to, substituting the quantity of experiences for the quality. And notice that there's two things going on here. Quantity versus quality, which we're going to have to clarify, and he provides us with some insight into. But he's also talking about experiences. He's not talking about ideals. He's talking about the realm in which we live, perceive, choose the world in which we are agents and patients. So it's the quantity of experiences that is going to matter. He goes on and he says, if I convince myself this life has no other aspect than that of the absurd, if I feel its whole equilibrium depends on that perpetual opposition between my conscious revolt and the darkness in which it struggles, if I admit that my freedom has no meaning except in relation to its limited fate, then I must say that what counts is not the best living, but the most living. And notice there's three ifs there. 
You don't have to buy those. Camus is not saying, everybody, I've got a universal ethic for you. It's going to substitute for Kant's categorical imperative or the utilitarian's greatest happiness principle or pick whatever else you want, the golden rule. Everybody must follow this. He's just saying, listen, if you buy this, you buy this and you buy this. If you've been reading the book so far and going along with it, here's what I think is the necessary conclusion from this. You need to value not the best living, but the most living. And he does have something else here that we might be a little critical towards. He says, it's not up to me to wonder if this is vulgar or revolting, elegant or deplorable. Once and for all, value judgments are discarded here in favor of factual judgments. That's a little bit dubious that we're getting entirely away from value and just focusing on the facts. That's a nice bit of rhetoric, but let's see where he's going with that, right? He says, I just have to draw the conclusions from what I can see and to risk nothing that is hypothetical. Supposing living in this way were not honorable, the true propriety would command me to be dishonorable. I have to follow this out because this is the conclusions that follows from all the stuff prior to this in the work, the understanding of the absurd and its meaning for, for me as a person. So here's where he says, we really need to be able to clarify this. And he goes on and says that a man's rule of conduct, his scale of values. So he's still saying that we can have those, but they have no meaning except through the quantity and variety of experiences he has been in a position to accumulate. So the rule of conduct, the scale of values, they get their meaning in our ongoing engagement with the world. And he describes, you know, the absurd condition and the world in which it's, it's revealed is one that's actually quite rich. There's a lot of possibilities for things. It doesn't mean when we say that things are absurd, that everything is now gray and boring and lifeless. If we want to see it that way, that's, that's up to us, but we don't have to. He goes on and he says the conditions of modern life impose on the majority of people. Now, he's, he's not saying this covers everybody, just the majority of people, the same quantity of experiences and, and consequently the same profound experience. And we can take into consideration the individual's spontaneous contribution, but I'm not going to judge of that, he says. And let me repeat that my rule here is to get along with the immediate evidence I see that the individual character of a common code of ethics lies not so much in the ideal importance of its basic principles, as like textbook authors would say, but in the norm of, of an experience, it's possible to measure. And he, he talks about the differences between cultures. You know, he's, he's somebody who's actually done a lot of study of the ancient Greeks, and he talks about their conception of their code of leisure, and we have the code of our eight-hour day. And he says, already many men among the most tragic cause us to foresee a longer experience changes this table of values. And here he brings up a really interesting idea that fits in well with our modern contemporary life. You could think of like the illusion that's created of celebrities through social media and other media. He says, they make us imagine that adventurer of the everyday who through mere quantity of experiences would break all records. And he says, I'm purposely using this sports expression in parentheses. So he wants to use this like notion. Uh, that's pure quantity, right? Somebody hits more home runs or something. Now they've passed up that person's record. And it's interesting with sports fans. So many of them love statistics. And... <laughs> 
the faith that people have in statistics as a side note is just blindingly crazy, isn't it? Because how the hell do you know that that person actually has those numbers? You're, you're relying on people to have accumulated these and done the mathematics right, not to lie to you about it. And people will like throw these out as, as if they're absolute facts. Why? Because there is something about quantity that people feel is important. And there is something about like having the highest quantity that people think is like being a winner being successful until the next person passes up your record. Now you're a has-been, right? And Camus says, okay, I'm not really focused on that because breaking those kind of records doesn't really matter. You could think about a great example of this is young men and they're often, you know, times lying about or sometimes trying to just accumulate all this experience. I've slept with this number of women, right? I've got these many notches in my belt. Well, that doesn't actually tell you that much about that experience now, does it? That accumulation of experience. They could be, you know, two-minute shooters. <laughs> they could have been entirely unaware of what they were doing at the time with the person who they managed to talk into. They could be lying completely, right? And these are illusory experiences. So simply accumulating records, that's not exactly what Camus means in this sense. You know, I also think about... <laughs> My wife recently rewatched Cool Hand Luke and, you know, the, the main line from that is no man can eat 50 eggs. Well, as it turns out, well, you can eat 50 eggs. It's not very good for you. Is that what Camus means by this? When I was, I, I mentioned to her as well that when I was a kid, I did something like that. They would allow us to have as many cartons of milk as we wanted at lunch. And so on a dare, a bunch of kids said, drink as much milk as you can. And I think I got to about seven before I got sick, these little pints of of milk. I was like, you know, 12 at the time or something. No, this is not what he's talking about. So he says, breaking all the records is first and foremost, being faced with the world as often as possible. And he asks a question here, but before we look at that question, we should think about that. Being faced with the world is the person, let's take the baseball metaphor again, is the person who hit the most home runs, did they face the world the most? Some other person might have been up at bat more often and they struck out. You know, maybe they had like a really low rating. They perhaps in that respect of facing the world actually accumulated more experience. So he says, how can that be done without contradictions and without playing on words? Why is there a contradiction? On the one hand, the absurd teaches that all experiences are unimportant. On the other, it urges towards the greatest quantity of experience. There's a sort of paradox here, isn't there? Or inconsistency. But the absurd doesn't care about being inconsistent now, does it? And, you know, you can get upset with the absurd. Oh, you should be consistent. And the absurd doesn't care. And that's just you and the absurd relating to each other again. So he says, how then can one fail to do, as so many of the people I was speaking of earlier, choose the form of life that brings the most possible of that human matter, introducing a scale of values that, on the other hand, one claims to reject? And he says, well, the absurd teaches us the mistake is thinking that quantity of experiences depends on the circumstances of our life when it depends solely on us. Now, that's got to be qualified to some degree, but it does depend on us, right? How so? Being or remaining, or we might say persevering in, which stresses the need to choose over and over again, conscious. 
He also uses the word lucidity here at this point in the work. He tells us that being aware of one's life, one's revolt, one's freedom, and to the maximum is living and to the maximum. That is how we can, in some respect, live the same life as some other poor schmuck, but have way more quantity of experience because we're, we're aware of it. We don't just live in the moment and flit from time to time and forget everything. That would be, in some respect, a bad strategy from Camus' point of view. We actually want to remain conscious of the past and even of the possibilities of the future. That is a richer quantitatively form of life. So he says, where lucidity dominates, the scale of values becomes useless. Let's be even more simple. Let's say that the sole obstacle, the sole deficiency to be made good is constituted by premature death. So the world also has a share in the quantity of experiences. He says, no depth, no emotion, no passion, no sacrifice could render equal in the eyes of the absurd man a conscious life of 40 years and a lucidity spread over 60 years. Now, is he making a distinction here between consciousness and lucidity? No, this is just Camus being a good writer and using two words that are meaning the same. 40 years of conscious living, 60 years of conscious living, 60 years has more packed in there quantity-wise than the 40 does. But somebody living 40 years of conscious living and 60 years of, you know, just sitting in front of the TV and chit-chatting on social media and eating the same crappy processed food might actually have less quantity of life in it, of experiences than 40 years of richer experiences, right? So he goes on, he actually brings up another factor. He says, madness and death are his irreparables. Why does he bring up madness? Because madness can separate ourselves from our experience. We can lose ourselves. Madness, he doesn't you know, define here, but you could think about all the different ways in which people are conscious in some sense, but not conscious fully in the sense that, that Camus is talking about here. And their life is over before they know it. So madness could be clinical, diagnosable disorders, what they used to call back then psychoses and neuroses, or it could just be buying into consumerism. It could be buying into some stupid political ideology that if you really thought things through, you'd realize you've been misusing the freedom that you have and pissing it away on being upset about this thing or taking action on this thing. So he goes on. And he tells us the absurd and the extra life it involves do not depend on man's will, but on its contrary, which is death. And he tells us the will is in a footnote. The will is only the agent here. It tends to maintain consciousness. It provides a discipline of life and that is appreciable. So he says then we have to be able to consent to this. There will never be any substitute for 20 years of life and experience. He does actually say something kind of funny about the Greeks here. He says, you know, the Greeks claim those who died young were beloved of the gods. And he says, well, that's true only if you're willing to believe that entering the ridiculous world of the gods is forever losing the purest of joys, which is feeling and feeling on this earth. The present and the succession of presence before a constantly conscious soul is the ideal of the absurd man. And then he says, ideal is actually the wrong word there. Right, that would put us back into like the meaning of life. He says it's not even his vocation, but merely the third consequence of his reasoning. If he actually wants to follow through on the realization of the absurd and to do so in a way that's uncompromising and unsparing, then he's going to be stuck with it. He says, having started from an anguished awareness of the inhuman, the meditation on the absurd returns to the very heart of the passionate flames of 
human revolt. A little bit later, he's going to call this passionate understanding. He actually brings up Nietzsche at the end of this section and says, when Nietzsche writes, it clearly seems the chief thing in heaven and on earth is to obey at length and in a single direction. In the long run, there results something for which it is worth the trouble of living on this earth as, for example, virtue, art, music, the dance, reason, the mind, something that transfigures, something delicate, matter, divine. He elucidates the rule of a really distinguished code of ethics, but he also points the way of the absurd man. Obeying the flame is both the easiest and hardest thing to do, but it is good for a person to judge themselves occasionally. He is alone in being able to do so. And so again, he says, in this, equivalence encounters passionate understanding. Do we have a full conception of what a ethics of quantity would be for Camus? No, he's, he's just sketching something out as the consequence of what it would be like to live without a meaning in life. And something that can be yet still meaningful, meaning producing, meaning bringing, but remains radically contingent upon the being that we have. He talks at one point about luck playing a role and on um, the world that we are cast into, that we don't choose except in a very tiny little portion of it that even then resists us. So this is what we can call the outlines of an ethics of quantity. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, Keep studying these great philosophical works.